for English learners in a classroom, you mentioned before, they're learning the mathematics, so the content is new to them in a new language. But there's also this sort of like third issue for them, which is they're often learning in a new context, right? In a new way of doing school, in a new culture. And that just increases the cognitive load before we even get to the thinking hard about the mathematics. And so anything we can do to hold steady part of that um, work for English learners is incredibly supportive. So if English learners do not have to every day learn a new set of instructions and directions before they even get started in the math thinking and the math doing, that frees up just a, a big chunk of brain space and at lowers anxiety and helps them engage in the mathematics. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How can building routines for reasoning help reduce cognitive load and anxiety for English learners in math classes? How can strategies like ask yourself questions, annotation, sentence frames and starters, and the four R's help provide equitable access to mathematical thinking? What are some effective ways of providing students with the academic vocabulary necessary to have a seat at the math table? We discuss these questions and much more in part one of our two-part series with Grace Kalamanik and Amy Lucenta authors of the book, Routines for Reasoning, Fostering the Mathematical Practices in All Students. Most recently, Amy Lucenta served as a secondary mathematics clinical teacher educator for the Boston Teacher Residency Program. Her experience spans K-12, teaching both middle and high school, then extending into elementary as a math coach. Her passion for helping struggling learners focus on developing the standards for mathematical practice is evident in the book and in our conversation, where she continues to explore how to develop mathematical thinkers through establishing routines that lead to success. Grace Kalamanik has over 30 years of mathematics education experience. As a frequent presenter at national conferences, she meets and continues to support countless math educators on their journey as thinking facilitators. She has served as an urban high school math teacher, education development center project director, and extensively supports new and pre-service teachers through the Boston Teacher Residency Program. One quote posted on their website that really resonated to me was, quote, English learners come into our classrooms expected to learn mathematics, which is new to them, in a language that is new to them, in a culture that is new to them, unquote. We hope you walk away from this conversation with some routines that will help support these learners. These routines will provide a structure for all of your students to get down to the business of discussing, defending, communicating, connecting, and reflecting on the learning of mathematics. Just a quick side note, as I mentioned a few times in the episode, I am not an expert in math, uh, but I think Grace, Amy, and I kind of come together in a way that brings our strengths to the table and may also expose some of our weaknesses, which I think is actually a great part of the conversation. Before we get started with our conversation with Grace and Amy, just a reminder that you can stay connected to us by joining our EL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. 
There you can leave comments about this episode and others. You can also engage with great content like our short video series, blog posts, and articles. And finally, and this is important, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This will help us continue bringing you the best topics and guests on Highest Aspirations. And of course, provide us with important feedback about the Highest Aspirations podcast. As always, thanks for listening. Here's part one of our two-part series with Grace Kelamanic and Amy Lucenta. Grace Kelamanic and Amy Lucenta, thanks so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Hi, Steve. Great to be here. Thanks for having us today. Yeah, Steve, it's terrific being part of the Highest Aspirations conversation. Yeah, it's good to have you both as well. And I, I sort of uh, admitted before we started here that I am no math expert. I'm sure my wife, who was a math teacher for a while, is thinking, how are you uh, doing this right now? But, uh, <laughs> but I think between your knowledge of math and English learners and my knowledge of English learners, this is going to be um, really fun. And I have to say, like, I picked up your Routines for Reasoning book. I was a little bit nervous, um, but I sat one day, like I got the motivation and I sat in my comfy chair, spent a few hours with it. I learned a ton and I was so excited to see all the crossover between the work we're doing and the work um, you're doing. So that being said, I think I'm pretty confident in, in the rest of this conversation. Great. Terrific. So let's start with the, with the math practices, which I learned a tremendous amount about, about by reading the first couple chapters of your book. And there are those out there, um, like me, just a couple months ago, who aren't familiar with the math practices or similar um, standards in states like Texas that are referred to um, as the process standards. So can you give us a short summary of what they are and why they're important for students um, and if appropriate for, for English learners in particular? Sure. So the math practices or process standards, um, I guess simply put, are describe ways in which mathematicians think and work. So it's not so much the what of mathematics, like the content that you're learning, but how mathematicians use the content to tackle problems of the world or to mathematize the world and make sense of it. Yeah. And I think like you know, with that definition in me reflecting back on my experience with the book, what I kept thinking is, I wish math were taught this way, or my teachers taught math this way when I was when I was growing up, because I had a hard time with just the very kind of rote memorization and plugging things in um, aspect of it. Yeah, and and we live in a like a constantly changing world right now. It's sort of this you know technology driven, data drenched world where you know we can ask Siri and Alexa math questions and they can answer them. So we have at our fingertips and our lips um, ways in which to kind of get the information and do the kinds of things that you and I learned to do by road with paper and pencil. And really what's becoming clear to us is that kids need to learn how to think and reason mathematically. Mm-hmm. That that's they're constantly positioned and they're bumping up against new experiences and new contexts and new technological tools to make sense of and use. And so we really need to ramp up thinking and reasoning in, um, in our math classrooms. And that's a challenge for all kids. It's particularly a challenge for students who often like, didn't have a seat at the math thinking table, like uh, English language learners and students with certain learning disabilities. So that was really a big motivation for Amy and Susan and I, when we were working on Routines for Reasoning, how to provide access to the mathematical thinking and reasoning for all students. Sure. 
Yeah, that's great. And I see just connections right there in the kind of the first introduction of this, this episode in, you know, we have the ability to find information, the what really easily using technology. So it actually affords us the opportunity to really think about the how we're learning and to really think about the ways and I like the way you put it. And I saw it in the book quite a bit, the way that mathematicians um, think. And, and that, that goes right into your mention of the book there, Routines for Reasoning. And, you know, your routines are sort of much broader than what teachers may be used to. When I hear the word routine, and I was a teacher for 17 years, a routine was like, all right, classroom management routines, like what do we do, uh, you know, over the course of the, of the day to make our lives a little bit easier. But your, your, the routines that you're talking about here um, include these phases, and I'll list them off, individual think time, partner work, whole class discussion, and math practice reflection. So can you tell us a little bit about why you use those four steps and why each one is important? And Amy, if you wouldn't mind tackling that one, that'd be great. Yeah, sure, Steve. Um, you really hit the nail on the head there. Routines have a variety of grain sizes and teachers use them for a multitude of purposes from management to um, materials, etc. But the, ultimately, the purpose is the same. So kids know what to expect. And so teachers... Um, teachers also know what to expect. Um, and for us, our routines are, are actually a student experience that's repeatable. Mm -hmm. And so you named these, these four chunks that we have in common in all of our routines that um, they start with some individual think time. And um, that's super important because students need time to make sense of what they're looking at or what they're hearing before they're ready to dive in. And particularly English language learners to have a little extra processing time so that they can make sense and prepare what they're going to say and process how they're thinking. And then uh, all of our routines have a heavy dose of partner work. Mm -hmm. And that also is to provide every student opportunity to process an idea, to work with a partner, to co-construct understanding to collaborate and and through that they're building the mathematical thinking they're building their own agency because they're the ones doing the thinking and they're given some some time to process both the idea and the language together with a partner and oftentimes that's in preparation for the whole class discussion and right. um yeah we think of the heavy lifting of uh, developing mathematical thinking happens in the partner work and then it gets synthesized in that whole class discussion. So that's um, always a part of our routines. And in that discussion, ideas are shared and reshared and synthesized. And then we return to the goal of the lesson, which is the mathematical thinking and students have the opportunity to reflect on it and actually name the kind of thinking they developed in, in the routine and and um, prepare themselves to use that thinking again in a similar but new situation. So those four steps are um, are present in all of our routines, and they do speak to a larger grain size. Then within those four chunks, there are specific designs for interaction that really allow students to feel and benefit from the routineness. Right. I'll take two things out of there that I think are really important. I think you did a great job summing them up. But I mean, for me, you know, there's that structure and agency piece that we never get away from. And to me, like, as I was reading this, I was thinking, boy, it's provide both the teacher and the student with the structure that you need to, to sort of know what's to expect. And we'll get to that in a second. 
that freedom to concentrate on other other important things, but also um, there's enough agency in there, right? Depending on the topic that you're discussing and depending on how the teacher, the particular teacher um, goes about uh, presenting a lesson that it's not going to stifle anybody's creativity, I don't think, particularly given the fact what you just discussed, which is that idea of like thinking about your own thinking, that metacognition piece, which which to me was like missing from math completely as I was, as I was going <laughs> through it and is really important for everybody. And there's lots of research out there now that particularly for English language learners, as they're processing both the content and the language that thinking about how they're thinking and how they're learning um, uh, is, is, is so crucially important. So I'm glad we talked a little bit about that. And, you know, I just mentioned like those routines, you, you write that they give teachers and students the freedom to concentrate on important matters instead of like worrying about, what am I supposed to be doing? What question will I be asked next? How will things work in today's lessons? And those, by the way, are all like direct quotes from your book. And then you make this great comparison, which I love, about someone learning to drive um, and, and how that kind of works there. Like if, if you, well, I'll let you, Grace, I'll let you kind of talk about that. Could you put that all together, like that, that driving metaphor and, and how it works in the context of an English learner um, in math class? Sure, I'd love to. Uh, so we use this driving metaphor in the book uh, to talk about like building a, building a habit and getting to a place where you're doing something without even having to think about it. And um, I'm kind of chuckling to myself because I've got a teenager who recently learned how to drive. So well, I'm, I'm almost reminded there. again. Horrifying. Yeah. I'm almost there. <laughs> uh, good, good luck. Thank you. <laughs> and I was re- reminded again as I was sitting white knuckled in the passenger seat of just how many things you have to be thinking about seemingly all at once and anticipating when you're beginning to learn to drive this powerful vehicle and that that changes, those things change rapidly depending on what kind of road you're on or what you're doing. And then at some point, you have enough experience uh, getting in, starting the car, driving it, becomes routine for you because you keep doing the same things over and over again and you no longer think about it. And now um, you're at a point where you get from point A to point B and you're like, huh, I I could be thinking about something else while I did that. Um, But for English learners in a classroom, you mentioned before, they're learning the mathematics. So the content is new to them in a new language. But there's also this sort of like third issue for them, which is they're often learning in a new context right, in a new way of doing school, in a new culture. And that just increases the cognitive load before we even get to the thinking hard about the mathematics. Mm -hmm. And so anything we can do to hold steady part of that um, work for English learners is incredibly supportive. So if English learners do not have to every day learn a new set of instructions and directions before they even get started, in the math thinking and the math doing, that frees up just a a big chunk of brain space and lowers anxiety and helps them engage in the mathematics. Their classmates, for whom English is the first language, when the teacher says, okay, group up or work with a partner or do this, they know those words and they do it uh, pretty quickly. But an English learner who's maybe never done school in a in a U.S. classroom may not even know how sort of the, the classroom operates. And so every new instruction, every instruction is new and takes effort to think through before you even get to the mathematics instruction. Right. 
I'm so glad you brought up the sort of cultural element and the element of, you know, school may be different, the context is different, and you kind of alluded to just those effective filters that immediately go up when something's different or new and, you, you know, you tend to kind of retreat or kind of tuck into your shell, um, which, which definitely happens frequently with English learners unless there are these kinds of routines in place. And the other thing I'll take out of that is, you know, we, we all, we like never get away. I think I say it in every episode that good instruction for English learners is good instruction for all students. And in this case, I definitely think that is the case. I mean, I don't think there's going to be any sort of advanced students who, who complain that uh, we, we have these routines that make me, you know, kind of process this stuff a little easier. So I feel like that's, um, is, is it fair to say that that's good instruction for everyone? It is, Stephen. It's, and it's helpful to the teacher. Yeah. Yeah. It just for the, in the very same reasons that it's helpful for the students, routines are helpful for the teacher because they know the flow of the lesson. They know what they're doing next. It's become second nature, like driving that car. They know what's coming next. So that frees up their brain space to really pay attention to what the students are saying and doing and how they're thinking and making sense of the mathematics. Because they're not thinking about what's my next move. Do I want kids to partner up for this? Or should I hand the papers out now? Like those decisions are already pre-made. They are baked into the structure of the routine. Right. Yeah. And there's, boy, there's so many places I could go with this car metaphor. I'm going to resist that temptation. Maybe that's another podcast episode, but like there's, you know, there's just so many things that can be introduced um, into that. And I just love it. And I recommend, you know, folks take a look at that part of the book. I really enjoyed that. So let's get into your, there's, there's four strategies that I want to um, sort of delve into here and I'll, and I'll name those as well. And, and for every, anybody listening, there's a lot of sort of strategies and routines and names here. Um, we'll, we'll link to lots of resources and the book obviously itself. Um, so you can dive in further. The purpose of this is to give people an idea um, of what these routines are and, and, and get people to know a little bit more about how they can support their English learners and other students really in math classes. But the four strategies are ask yourself questions, uh, annotation, sentence frames, and starters, and the four R's. So um, let's let's go through those. Tell us sort of what they are, um, and maybe introduce if there's if there's one that you think is particularly applicable here. Maybe we can dive in a little further, or if you want to go into some others, um, that's fine as well. Yeah. So each of our instructional routines has the the chunks you were talking about, kind of the big picture flow, and then they also have these four strategies baked into, into each of the routines. And these strategies are actually supports for all learners, but they're supports for different reasons. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And uh, they don't just support students and engage them. Uh, they orient their thinking to the standards for mathematical practice. Mm -hmm. I'll give a brief description of each one. And then maybe, as you said, we'll take a deeper dive into one or two of them. But ask yourself questions uh, are questions that we as mathematicians ask ourselves, like, hmm, what is this problem about? What's the important information here? Or does this remind me of something else I've seen? And um, we, we use them explicitly in the routines to develop them in students so that students internalize them and ask themselves those questions, even when we're not there. And to develop, to go back to the car analogy, to develop their own internal compass rather than listening to be an, to an external mm -hmm. GPS. Um, annotation provides a visual support for what's being said in the room. Crucial. Yeah. So we, as I said, we're big fans of whole class discussion, 
But if the whole class discussion is in the air, that's really hard to follow yep. for, for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's because, um, maybe it's for uh, reasons of, uh, I don't know, auditory processing. Maybe it's because uh, there are attention issues. So uh, trying to track something just in one mode is difficult. And we obviously, for English learners, having a visual support for what's being said in the room to really develop an idea is, is super critical. So annotation connects the verbal and the visual. And we use annotation really purposefully to highlight mathematical practices. Mm -hmm. So whether that's um, structural thinking or quantities and relationships. And we use color purposely when we annotate. So it helps organize thinking and orient to certain aspects of it. So like I mentioned, each one of these, these strategies will support students and engage them and also orient toward a, a mathematical practice. And is that, if I can just dive in for a second, is that color you mentioned that you use color sort of purposely and deliberately, is that something that is established like at the beginning of the school year as part of a routine? Green means this, red means this, blue means this, or is that something that's a little bit more um, open-ended? Um, it's a little more open-ended. It's more, uh, I'm kind of chuckling thinking, wow, that would take an incredible amount of organization. I know, I know. <laughs> thinking the same thing when I asked it, but I was just curious. No, it's more like in, say you're looking at a problem situation and there's a, a number of chocolate bars in, in with one set of, one group of friends. And in the problem situation, you can underline that in green. And then you can look at, say a tape diagram or a visual representation of the problem situation and shade that the part of the visual in green. Right. So that it references back to the Main quantity. Connection. So, but in a much smaller sense, the color is purposeful. <laughs> Got it. Um, yeah. And yeah, then the other two remaining strategies are sentence frames and starters, which uh, uh, obviously for English learners are a huge support to give them a language to start their um, share out or their sharing of the idea, their articulation to mm -hmm. give them a running start in the language. And they support a variety of other learners again for, for different reasons, maybe for students who have anxiety. Well, when they go to share in math class, it gives them a starting point. It gets them going or organizing their thinking is difficult. So it gives them that starting point. Um, what we're really always aware of is, Although these strategies support a lot of students, it's for different reasons. It's not that um, all students are coming to the table with uh, similar needs, and that's why we're using the same support, but they're strategies that actually meet a range of needs right. for different reasons. And then lastly, um, the four R's, repeat, rephrase, reword, and record. Um, Grace, do you want to talk about the four R's and why you use each one? That's kind of our most frequently asked question. Yeah, sure. So in a classroom, when a student shares a mathematical idea, one of the things a teacher wants to be thinking about, like first out of the gate is, did everybody hear it? If everybody hasn't heard it, then we want to ask the student to repeat it, or maybe the student, a uh, student who did hear the idea shared, to repeat the idea. Mm -hmm. And then we want to make sense of the idea. And so asking students, one or two other students, to rephrase the idea, 
to say it in a different way gives uh, the class an opportunity to kind of process and those students an opportunity to process the idea. Can they rephrase it with their own words? Um, and then, and this is, I think, uh, a part we'll talk, we'll talk some more about this balance between um, real precise language, like mathematically precise language or academic language and everyday language students might use to talk about their mathematical thinking in the classroom and communicate. Right, right. So this idea of rewording, we've shared this idea, we've rephrased it, we really understand it. Now might be the time to reward it um, with some increasing precision in mathematical language. Yeah. And then finally the record piece, which is as a teacher, I'm thinking about is there language that we're using or want to be using that I should be recording uh, visually so students can be using it as a reference while we're talking about this idea in the lesson. So the big thing to point out here is that the, um, the repeating and the rephrasing and the rewording by and large are being done by the students, not the teacher. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like so, so often in a classroom, a student will share an idea and the teacher will rephrase it or reword it or repeat it to make sure everyone heard it or make it more precise. And when they do that, not only are they um, sort of robbing kids of an opportunity to process the idea on their own, but critically, they're robbing kids of the opportunity, in particular English learners, to try out language and, and yep. speak in the classroom. And, and a, a third reason is they're essentially sending this tacit message that you don't have to listen to your classmates. Yeah. If this is something important, I'll, re I'll repeat it for everybody to hear. So we want kids listening to each other and working with each other's ideas and having lots of opportunities to articulate verbally um, the ideas in the classroom. Yeah, I mean, that's just hearing you talk about the four hours, um, you know, particularly the rephrasing part, well, really all of it, but I guess the culmination of it is, is the rephrasing and then the and then the recording so so you can see what what was rephrased and what language was used but it's a breath of fresh air for me and i'm sure a lot of listeners out there who also sort of experienced um math and maybe the way that i did but thinking about the english learner i mean this is like it's so crucial and it's just so um so nice to hear that that academic language that vocabulary is such a key component um of the structures um or the four strategies that you've that you've set up and should become a kind of routine. And I did watch um, some videos that you have, which we'll link to that showed this in action. It was just, I mean, it was just great. And, you know, you see the students um, working on this. And again, it's not just the English learners who are benefiting from it, but boy, I mean, it is specifically um, and uh, uh, helpful, I think, uh, for those particular students. And I'm sure others as well as you've witnessed it, but just from my sort of biased lens, that just sounds so nice. And I'm sure others are thinking the same thing. And implied in all of this, I think, is if you watch the video or dig further into these routines, um, we're not big fans of pre-teaching vocabulary. We're big fans of having students work on mathematics, make sense of it um, from where they are, using the language they have to make sense of it, and then introducing the appropriate mathematical language when there's a need for it. Like when they now have something to attach meaning to that new word with or new phrase with, or it helps us because it helps us be specific about an idea. 
Yeah. And I was going to, I was actually going to get to this question later, but I just kind of flipped my sheet over because I, I do remember it. And, I, and you just mentioned that idea of pre-teaching. And I'd like to kind of dive into that a little bit more, you know, and, and I know there is some research out there um, that, that encourages teachers to refrain from pre-teaching math vocabulary. So, I mean, what, what are some effective ways to provide language and vocabulary to English learners so they have equitable access to this rich academic discourse in the lesson? I mean, I, I think that you've given those, those um, the routines that we talked about and then there's four strategies do build that in. But like, if you're about to do a lesson, you know, something related to, and again, I'm like, you know, my ignorance will show here with math, but you're, maybe you're, you're talking about fractions and there's just certain language that the students need. Um, how do you, how do you go about doing that? I mean, is, is there some, is there a way to kind of introduce that like right before the lesson starts? I mean, when you say pre-teaching, I'm curious what that conjures up for you. I mean, there's the idea of like, as a Spanish teacher, you know, I refrained always from, and I think all good teachers do of like giving students a list of vocabularies that for them to memorize. And then the end of the week, we have a quiz, but it's totally out of context. What, what is your idea of pre-teaching there? Well, I think you really, uh, I like talking about this right after the essential strategies because the essential strategies serve to um, get ideas out there and build language through that. And your example of uh, teaching a fraction lesson, say you're adding fractions. We, we are big fans of using visuals in everything we do. So a lot of our routines have uh, visual representations baked in. Uh, and, and students grapple with an idea in the language they're comfortable in, in their imprecise, informal, sometimes um, primary language. And they, they grapple with the idea. And when we share the idea out and have some annotation to go along with it, students might be using words like this and that to really mean numerator and denominator. Sure. That's probably what I'd use. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. The top and the bottom. Right. The top and the bottom. And um, while the teacher's pointing to it or annotating, circling it and connecting it to a visual representation or the students referencing it visual and talking about the three is over there. No, no, no. Above. And they're, they're giving directions and they're not using precise mathematical language. And then that idea gets rephrased. And another student says, um, adds another layer of precision. And if there's, now that the idea is out there, if there's precise math vocabulary, the teacher may say something like, and do we have a word for that in math? And, or the teacher may say, and we have a word for that in mathematics. It's called numerator. But it, the idea gets out first and in multiple ways and um, and, and multiple modalities. And then, um, and then there's residue of it. So it gets recorded through annotation and the record part of the four R's. And that way, students have that language to use again. Um, another way we really provide language and vocabulary to students is through the language we give them. <laughs> that sounds a little redundant but what i mean is when we pose an ask yourself question there's language in it yep. and that language we're we're saying it and we're modeling it and then students are internalizing it and we reference back to the ask yourself questions yeah so if we say what are the important quantities in this situation remember quantities we describe quantities with the number of and we give a sentence frame for it so now we're we're linking it to their language production and 
that provides access to students through ask yourself questions, through sentence frames and starters. Um, we, when we work with teachers, sometimes we are really, we get down to the nitty gritty and teachers ask, well, how am I gonna, how am I gonna do this? And so we have some tips for using sentence frames and starters. And I, we know a, a lot of teachers already use them and uh, teachers have found it really helpful to think about the specifics of using them by posting the language, by modeling the sentence frame and start or starter, and then expecting all kids to use it. So that's vastly different from saying, oh, there's a sentence frame up there if you need it. Sure. It's very different than saying, so when you turn to your partner, start with, I, I can, mm, sorry, I'm not coming up with a good one. Um, when you turn to your partners start naming the quantities start with the number of or the amount of and so now when they turn to their partners they're they're sharing specific uh ideas and in using that language and vocabulary and then there's residue of it so they get to the meta reflection at the end of the lesson and they now are like reaching for that language that's been used and they've heard it receptively and now they want to use some of it and apply it in the meta reflection and there's residue around the room for them to, to reach to. Yeah. I mean, it sounds to me and correct me if I'm wrong, but like, like just to kind of break this down, there's like, there's a deliberate yet somewhat subtle um, infusion of language and vocabulary throughout the entire process with sort of contextual visual representations and different layers of, of expression. Um, and so you know, the student, I feel like while they're going through it, isn't like being bombarded with this giant vocabulary list, but it, but it's, it's getting in because they have to use it and then it's rephrased and then they have time to actually think about it, uh, you know, using, using metacognition, think about their thinking and then they get to use it again. Is that a fair mm -hmm. kind of simplified version of what you said? Steve, that's so good. I can't wait to hear this and um, quote you on that. Well, that's the highest compliment I've ever received related to math, so I think now is as good a time as any to stop part one. We'll be back next time with part two to discuss the idea of taking an asset-based approach, rigor and productive struggle, language-rich discourse, and much more. Just as with part one, I think you'll be really impressed with Grace and Amy and how they make a connection between math and English learners and other content areas. As always, thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.